And hey, here's another reminder. Listen to Washington Today. It's a program that really gives you a wrap-up of the events on Capitol Hill, at the White House, and elsewhere in Washington. And you can listen to it on your schedule. Download the podcast, listen wherever you go. And we would love to hear from you. Questions or comments on what you've heard? Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org. And hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. This is The Weekly for Friday, October 25th. I'm Steve Scully. He was in his late 20s when he first started to write speeches for Presidents Ronald Reagan and later George H.W. Bush. Today, he is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Peter Robinson joins us to talk about working in the White House, 2020 politics, and the Republican Party under the current president, Donald Trump. Our conversation from the campus of Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Peter Robinson, as a veteran of both the Reagan and the George H.W. Bush White House, the author of a number of books, including one on the Republican Party, your GOP party today is what? You begin with a vexing question, Steve. Thank you very much for that. The GOP today, the figure and person of Donald Trump, of course, loom over the GOP today. But my – here's – The way I think about it is as follows. If you view Donald Trump the way your elementary school teacher taught you to view a solar eclipse, which is you never look at the sun itself. You look away and you get the second order effects. If you look at Donald Trump, you'll go crazy, as so many people in Washington seem to have done. The person of Donald Trump is erratic and vulgar and upsets all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. Look away from Donald Trump Trump to the fundamental policies his administration is pursuing, that the Senate in particular, I'll come back to the Senate in a moment. I won't go on and on about this answer, but I'll come back to the Senate in a moment. Those policies remain fundamentally conservative policies. The tax reform permitted the economy to begin growing at a much faster clip. Uh, Unemployment among African Americans, unemployment among the country generally is at historic lows. That means millions of people are being brought back into the economy. Millions of people's lives are better off. They're able to pursue better lives for themselves. Rebuilding the military, there are problems. The Syria decision of moving troops, withdrawing troops from one region in Syria, I would disagree with that. A lot of Republicans have disagreed with that, but the underlying fundamental policies of the Trump administration remain, for the most part, within the spectrum of what you would consider ordinary Republican or conservative policies. So there's that. Donald Trump will be gone in either a year or five years. And if you look at particularly the younger talent, younger Republican talent in the Senate, Tom Cotton, of Arkansas, Rob Portman of Ohio. Joni Ernst is up for a tough re-election fight next year of of Iowa. You've got a dozen young Republican senators. If you look out to the country, to Republican governors, Greg Abbott of Texas, the Republican Party as a party is in good shape. And when Donald Trump is gone, it'll become... I I don't want to denigrate Donald Trump. I would disagree with a number of his policies. And if I had a moment or two with him, I'd, 
I'd tell him to stop, stop tweeting, but st still in all, I don't want to denigrate him, but the Republican Party will become more itself. Let's put it that way. It, it should, it, it, it'll, it'll take, there, there, the one argument is that it'll take years for the Republican Party to recover from Donald Trump. My judgment is it'll take about six months. But right now, in the fall of 2019, it is the party of Trump? That's a question. It is the party of conservative policies dis from which lots of Americans are very understandably distracted by the person of Donald Trump. So, in my judgment, many Hispanics, recent arrivals to this country and not so recent arrivals to this country, the rhetoric of, that Trump uses when talking about immigrants caused them to dislike him and everything he stands for and to be less receptive to the underlying principles of the Republican Party, which are free markets and individual responsibility and the importance of the family. There are many, because of the culture from which they come, many recent arrivals to this country, particularly from Mexico, ought to be natural members of the Republican Party. Donald Trump, I believe, is, is dissuading them. So the, the underlying policies remain fundamentally intact and certainly sound, and certainly more sound, I would argue, there's no doubt about my own politics, than those being proposed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. The, Republic, the Democratic Party of the centrist Democratic Party from Franklin Roosevelt to Bill Clinton is gone now. It's becoming a socialist party. The idea that any of the leading Democratic contenders, including Joe Biden, could utter the phrase that Bill Clinton uttered in a State of the Union address, the era of big government is over, that's inconceivable. So the fundamental outlook and orientation of the Republican Party remains intact. In my judgment, the person of Donald Trump is in all kinds of ways a distraction, certainly here in California. It's just very hard for the Republican Party to get any traction here in California because the manner and person of Donald Trump are in, – here in California, it's viewed as worse, worse than distracting. It's – Trump is just impossible to take, impossible to swallow. So I view the person of Donald Trump as in all kinds of ways a – let's put it this way. It's, an aber it's temporary. I don't want to say aberration, but it's unusual and it's temporary. The fundamental orientation of the Republican Party remains in place, and there's young talent willing to – ready to assert itself soon. Well, let me take that one step further because you worked for two presidents. You know what it's like to work inside the White House, the pressures that staffers are facing. And I came across a figure the other day that in the first two and a half years of the Trump presidency, he has had an 80 percent turnover in senior staff, 80 percent. He's a hard guy to work for. He's a very hard guy to work for. Um, there's no secret here that Donald Trump is not – Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush. Ronald Reagan had the tremendous advantage as a leader of being a lovely human being. There's a, a club that Bill Sapphire, the late William Sapphire, who was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon and then a longtime columnist for the New York Times. Bill Sapphire founded a club called the Judson Welliver Society for former presidential speechwriters. And there were a couple of tables. I haven't been in a while, but there were a couple of tables of speechwriters who understood each other, even though their politics were very different. The speechwriters who wrote for John Kennedy, uh, Richard Goodwin, um, uh, Ted Sorensen, Arthur Schlesinger, and the speechwriters who wrote for Ronald Reagan, 
and George H.W. Bush. And what we all had in common was that we loved our presidents. We just loved those men. Not the writers who wrote for Richard Nixon. That was a much more complicated relationship. Not the writers who wrote for John Lyndon Baines Johnson. Again, a much more complicated relationship. And I'm not aware, I've talked to a few of them, I have friends who have served or are serving in the Trump administration. I have great respect for them because they're trying to hold this whole act together, but he is not an easy man for whom to work. You have heard the argument that Ronald Reagan would not be welcome in this Republican Party. When you hear that, what's your reaction? Would he be? Is this his Republican Party on these big issues? On the big issues, for the first four, five, or six years after Ronald Reagan left office, it was sensible to ask the question, what would President Reagan do? We've now moved so far from that time, that period. It was defined by the Cold War. The Cold War has been over for 30 years. Ronald Reagan was pro, how to put this, he was totally open to and indeed fond of Hispanic culture. When he ran for president in 1980, he proposed making Puerto Rico the 51st state. And of course, he signed the famous immigration reform in 1986, which granted an amnesty to 3 million people who are in the country illegally. Again, though, Ronald Reagan came of an age, came of age when there was relatively little immigration into this country. And if you look at that 1986 immigration bill, there were two components. One was an amnesty, but the other was to toughen up enforcement of ille- against illegal immigration so that we wouldn't have to grant another amnesty, so that we wouldn't have more illegal immigrants. Okay, so the main point on which, the main points on which Reagan, the distinctions get drawn between the current administration and Ronald Reagan, one is immigration. I believe the president would at, would at least have been open to the notion excuse me, he would certainly have insisted on the notion that we need to enforce the rule of law to the border. Whatever, you, whatever he decided was the appropriate level of immigration, the idea that the law had gone unenforced for something like three decades and that we now have anywhere from 11 to 15 million Ill- illegal immigrants, that would have offended Ronald Reagan. Not that he would have anything and against, against the immigrants. He wouldn't have been like Donald Trump railing against the immigrants themselves. Reagan would never have done that. The second point, of course, is that Reagan would have insisted on, continu- on maintaining rhetorical, rhetorically close relations with the NATO alliance. That's, on the other hand, again, these are subtleties here because Ronald Reagan would have been offended by the idea that every NATO nation is supposed to contribute two percent of its GDP toward defense spending, and I think on last count, only three or four one when Donald Trump took office, only three or four were. Ronald Reagan would have been offended by that as well. He was a different man. His rhetoric would have been different. But he would at least have been open to the arguments that Trump is making on immigration and on NATO. On the tax reform, Reagan would have been all in favor of that. We talked to George Schultz uh, about a number of issues, including climate change. And I mention that because it was Governor Ronald Reagan in the 1960s who set up the emission standards here in California to try to clean up the air. And now you have the Trump administration saying we're going to have a single standard for the entire country. As somebody who lives here in California, thinking about the legacy of Ronald Reagan as governor of this state, your reaction? 
again, it's hard to say quite what Ronald Reagan have made of, would have made of the, this particular moment in sorting out policy. Here's what we can say about, what we can say about Ronald Reagan for sure. He was not an environmentalist, and I use that term to include the push from the left. The environment, environmentalism is a, is a kind of political configuration that exists on the left. Ronald Reagan was a conservationist. It made all the sense in the world to him to have open public spaces, to make sure the environment was clean and cared for. That was Reagan. We can say that for sure. He would have cared a great deal about the evidence on climate change and about doing what we could to the extent that the evidence was clear to combat it. The other thing we know about Ronald Reagan is that he was always suspicious of government action as against private sector action. For sure, President Reagan would have been thrilled by fracking, by the technological developments in the private sector that have enabled us to shift from dirtier fuels, coal in particular, to some extent oil, and shift into natural gas. So we can say one thing, another thing, which is that, of course, he, he... Ronald Reagan believed very deeply in states' rights and the importance of permitting states to conduct their own experiments. So probably Reagan would have stood up for the right of California to establish its own, in the, even in the current climate, to establish its own emissions standards, its own environmental policy, and so forth. At the same time, though, I can't believe for a moment that he would have approved of the crowd currently running Sacramento or our current governor or the extent to which they're imposing, they wish to impose regulations on the economy, even in the name of the environment. Let me remind our listeners, we're talking with Peter Robinson. He is the Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution here on the campus of Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. He's also the host of Uncommon Knowledge. As you look at the 2020 race right now, about a year out, give us your handicap. What are you seeing? What are you thinking? (laughs) Donald Trump is so unpopular that he cannot be elected president. The Democratic field is so far to the left that none of them can be elected president. Somebody's going to be elected president. In other words, this is, this is as perplexing as any field or any moment in politics that I can remember experiencing or as perplexing as any moment in politics about which I've read in my readings of American history. At the same time, actually I can sum this up. All useful political analysis, really useful political analysis, begins and ends with an old Henny Youngman gag. Question, how's your wife? Answer, compared to what? (laughs) So Donald Trump is, his unfavorables are sky high. He is clearly personally, he's driven some people crazy and a lot of people dislike him. Uh, I mean, some people dislike him so much that kind of they, you can't even talk about Donald Trump with them. On the other hand, he hasn't changed the country. He's annoyed us all. But there haven't been any policies by Donald Trump that have changed the nature of the country. By contrast, Bernie Sanders, I actually find Bernie Sanders an appealing person. I like the authenticity, the sort of Brooklyn grit. I know he's lived in Vermont for years, but he grew up in Brooklyn. He still seems to me like a a Brooklyn figure to me. Elizabeth Warren is urbane and polished and appealing in all kinds of ways. Joe Biden, there's a 
there's a kind of nasty edge to Joe Biden that comes out from time to time. But fundamentally, Joe Biden is what he what he was when he grew up. He's an ordinary guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who grew up with people who went down in the coal mines every morning. He understands working people. These are all much easier people to take, for me at least, than Donald Trump. But look at the policies they're advocating. Elizabeth Warren said in one Democrat, the, I guess it was two Democratic debates ago, that she would issue an executive order eliminating fracking in the name of the environment. A, that's almost certainly unconstitutional. <laughs> We'd have to see what the Supreme Court made of it. But you can't wipe out a whole sector of economic activity with an executive order. And B, what is she even talking about? It's fracking that's enabled us to shift to natural gas and lower greenhouse gas emissions. The United States in the last decade has lowered greenhouse gas emissions by as much as all of the European Union, which has a bigger population and a bigger economy. Okay. In other words, their policies, let's put it this way. The centrist, common sense, fundamentally free market Democratic Party that remained in place from Franklin Roosevelt all the way through Bill Clinton is gone. It has simply disappeared. And now the Democratic Party, it, the test case is Joe Biden himself. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are advocating policies so far to the left that it's really fair to call them socialist. And Bernie Sanders calls himself socialist. He's open about it. The question I had in the last couple of months is, what's Biden going to do? Is Biden going to make a centrist play here and say, look, I don't know what you think the Democratic Party is, but I stand for the Democratic Party that goes back to Franklin Roosevelt. I stand for ordinary, decent, working Americans. They need jobs. We need an economy. The role of the government has to be restrained. But Joe Biden isn't doing that. Joe Biden himself is moving very far to the left. So what you have is Donald Trump, who is annoying and sometimes intensely annoying and who makes terrible mistakes. This foreign policy move in Syria strikes me as a terrible, terrible mistake. But he hasn't changed the nature of the country. He hasn't made life worse for Americans, nor would, on the contrary, his tax reform helped the economy to grow more quickly and created millions of jobs. Uh, nor would he change it over the next four years. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, if the Democrats keep the House, capture the White House with one of these candidates, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, even Pete Buttigieg, who seems a perfectly pleasant, mild-mannered, his policies are really very far to the left. And then if they flip on net three seats in the Senate, this won't be the same country. So Donald Trump has the opportunity to run a campaign saying prosperity versus socialism. If it's Elizabeth Warren, he can run a campaign, Harvard versus America. My, my, I'd, I'd put a little bit of money on Donald Trump. I would not put more than 100 bucks on Donald Trump, but I'd put 100 bucks on Donald Trump. I want to go back to something that you played a key role in the Reagan presidency because it became one of the iconic moments. When we think back at the speeches that Ronald Reagan delivered, we often think of this speech, June 12, 1987. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 
Peter Robinson, as you hear the words of then-President Ronald Reagan in the final year and a half of his administration, what's the story behind Tear Down This Wall? What was your role? I was a speechwriter who wrote the thing. Um, I was assigned the speech in, let's see, May of 1987. I flew to Berlin to do research, uh, saw the wall, stood where the president was going to stand to deliver the speech. That shook me because... There was such a sense of, of moment or history there. You look into the east, to East Berlin, and it was all gray. The buildings were badly maintained. You turn around and look into West Berlin, and you have a modern city, color, activity, uh, people well-dressed, recent model automobiles, activity and vibrancy. I think really in, in all these years later, what I remember most vividly is one direction you looked toward West Berlin, there was color. And you swivel 180 degrees and look over the wall into East Berlin, and it's gray and brown, colorless. All right. That evening in Berlin, I attended a dinner party that was put on by Berliners, West Berliners. We, we had never met, but we had friends in common in Washington. And there were 12 or 15 Berliners there, West Berliners there. We chatted for a moment or two, and then I explained to them that I had been told, as I had earlier that day by the ranking American diplomat, that in writing a speech for the president, I should not make much of the Berlin Wall because they'd all gotten used to it. And, of course, I'd just seen the wall for the first time. And I explained I th it would be hard to get used to that, but, but perhaps, perhaps you put it out of your mind. Had they gotten used to it, I asked. And just as an aside, did you have the words of John Kennedy in the back of your mind? I had the words of John Kennedy in the back of my mind in this sense. Before I flew to Berlin, I looked at the tape of President Kennedy giving the Ich bin ein Berliner remarks, and I thought to my, and there were, his audience was over 100,000 people. The tension of that moment, uh, it was still very much a question in the minds of Berliners, West Berliners, was the United States going to remain committed to them? And there comes John Kennedy and says, Ich bin ein Berliner, and that crowd exploded. The drama, I just thought, whatever I do, I don't want to write anything that bears direct comparison with John Kennedy. The moment in history is so different, so different that I don't want the, the president might have 40,000 people there. Uh, that was what I was told that the plot, and I think that did turn out to be about the, the, the right number. But that's a fraction of the crowd that greeted Kennedy. There wasn't a sense of drama in the air for the president's president Reagan's visit there had been for Kennedy, so the, the answer is yes. But the answer, but I had thought to myself, whatever I do, I don't want to write anything that causes the president to be the president. When I talk about the president, I mean Ronald Reagan. That causes Reagan to be directly compared with Kennedy. Okay, so I asked, "Have you gotten used to the wall?" And the first thing that happened was silence. Oh no, I've committed a gaffe here. And then one man raised his arm and pointed. And he said, my sister lives just a few kilometers over that way, in that direction, but I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about that wall? And they went around the room, and each person talked about the wall. One man described walking to work each morning, and his route took him past a guard tower. I said, there's a young man up there with a rifle over his shoulder who peers down at me every morning with binoculars. We speak the same language. We share the same history. 
One of us is an animal and the other is a zookeeper, and I've never been able to decide which was which. And then our hostess, Ingeborg Eltz, a lovely woman, and we remained in touch ever afterwards. She died just a couple of years ago, and her husband died just last year. But gracious woman, she had been warm and convivial, but she became angry at this point. And she said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, glasnost, perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of this wall. And that was, I had a notebook, I was noting what people were saying, but I, knew, I just felt a kind of thrill at that moment of recognition. I thought if the president were here, he would have responded to that remark. Powerful, simple, decent, true. So back I went to Washington and drafted a speech around a call to tear down the wall. Um, my then boss, Tony Dolan, who was the chief speechwriter, and Tommy Griscom, who was then director of communications, the three of us, the three of us got this into the president. The ordinary process in those days was for some, a speech to go out to staffing before it went to the president. And Tommy Griscom and Tony Dolan and I all sensed that there was going to be trouble over this. This a call to tear down the Berlin Wall was something that the National Security Council wasn't going to be comfortable with. So we got it to the president. Tony Dolan and Tommy pulled something of a fast one, and we got it to the president first. We got it to him on a Friday afternoon, and he reviewed it at Camp David that weekend. And then we had a meeting with the president in the Oval Office, and he said, "I." He, he, Tommy Griskin, Mr. President, Peter's speech, and the president just, well, that was a, a fine draft, good speech, yes, yes. And then I explained what I had learned in Berlin, which is that people would be listening to the speech on the other side, the communist side of the wall, and if the weather conditions were just right, they could pick it up in Moscow, as far east as Moscow, by radio. Mr. President, is there anything in particular you'd like to say to the people on the other side of the wall? And the president said, well, there's that passage about tearing down the wall, that's what I want to say to them. That wall has to come down, period. Then the speech went out to staffing. Then it went out to staffing. And for three weeks, the National Security Council and the State Department tried to squelch that speech. What was critical was that the president had said, had made it clear in front of witnesses, speechwriters and Tommy Griscom, that he, was especially, he especially wanted to deliver that passage and that meant that the State Department and the National Security Council tried to get me, the speechwriter, and Tony Dolan, my boss, and Tommy Griscom to change. If I had written a memo to the president saying, Mr. President, on a second thought, that passage probably goes too far, he would very likely have deferred to the speechwriters because I'd been there and done the research. But nobody challenged president, the president himself. Howard Baker, the chief of staff, I talked about this with him years later, he didn't like that line. He, thought, he, he told me years later he thought it was undignified. It just didn't sound presidential. Too much of a direct challenge. Howard Baker did not raise that with Pre President Reagan himself because nobody wanted to say, Mr. President, you know that line you especially said you wanted to deliver, and we know that you're the, the nation's leading anti-communist, and we're going to put you in an unbelievably dramatic position over there standing in front of the Berlin Wall. Well, actually... We'd rather have you give a boring speech on small diplomatic initiatives like the one the State Department just sent over. Nobody wanted to say that to Ronald Reagan. So this went back and forth and back and forth. 
the, I was not part of the traveling party, but they left. They were going to stop in Italy. They did stop in Italy for an economic summit in Venice before going on to Berlin. And Ken Duberstein, then the deputy chief of staff, took the matter back to the president for a second decision. And Ken told me he went through the arguments against the speech, against that passage with the president. State Department thinks it puts too much pressure on Gorbachev. It's raising false expectations. That wall isn't going to come down anytime soon and so forth. And then he had the president reread the central passage. And then Ken said they talked about it for a while. And then Ronald Reagan got that twinkle in his eyes. You're just old enough to remember something about that twinkle, Steve. You saw that on the news, I'm sure. And the president said, now, um, I'm the president, aren't I? Yes, sir. We're clear about that much. So I get to decide whether this stays in. Yes, sir, Mr. President, it is your decision. Well, then, it stays in. Boom. And he delivered the speech. And the rest is history because a year and a half later, the wall came down. The wall did come down. And I have to say that, first of all, that speech is all Ronald Reagan. I've outlived the man, so people are giving me credit. And I have to admit, I don't particularly object, except that it's not due to me. I was just a kid speechwriter. It was all Ronald Reagan. I had worked for George H.W. Bush. He would never have delivered that speech. Any, anyone else who might have been president in Reagan's place would never have delivered it. All I was doing in Berlin and in writing the speech was giving him material that I believed he would find moving and compelling. And then, of course, in the end, it was Reagan himself who overruled really the whole foreign policy apparatus of the United States government and said, no, I'm giving the speech. So it was Reagan's speech. Even at that, it was only when the wall came down, I don't know how to put this, the speech, the speech became retroactively prophetic, if you see what I mean. When the wall came down, people looked back at the speech that the president had given not that much long, not that long ago, and thought, it's there, it's there, that, that moral clarity. Whatever it is that won that Cold War, whatever it is that the American people felt over four and a half decades to sustain that effort, Ronald Reagan gave voice to in that, in that speech. In our final minute, as you reflect back on your time working with President Ronald Reagan, a favorite moment, a favorite story, or an anecdote? Well, <laughs> this, is, this is on my mind because we just lost... President Bush, President George H.W. Bush, I worked for, for him when he was vice president. And there, there was about a three-week period when I was being tried out for the president's staff. So I was writing speeches for Reagan and Bush at the same time, and I couldn't really manage the workload. So I stole some material that I had given the vice president and put it in a speech for the president, thinking they, they would never listen to each other's speeches. And I went over to the East room in the White House to listen to President Reagan deliver that speech. And down at the end of the cross hall, the elevator doors open and Ronald Reagan gets out. And to my horror, the vice president is with him. And I'm thinking, how do I, can I climb under a sofa? And they walked past me and to my even worse horror, the vice president spotted me. And as they walked into the East Room, he turned to me and said, hiya, Pete. And then Ronald Reagan delivered the speech and he got to the passage, which was I identical to, a, to the passage that George H.W. Bush had delivered 48 hours before. And I could see the vice president, first he had this strange, strangely curious, what, what? 
And then he looked around the, and he found me. And for just a moment, those brilliant blue eyes of George H.W. Bush turned into laser beams. And I was, I felt as though I had been reduced to a pile of ashes. He didn't say a word about it. I got the job on the president's staff. And then he invited me in to have a chat for sort of a farewell chat. This is now a couple of weeks later. And I thought, thank goodness he's forgotten about it. And he said, it's been a pleasure. We chatted a moment or two about speeches that I'd written for him. If there's anything ever, ever anything I can do for you, let me know. And then there's a little bit of a silence. And he said, by the way, did I hear the president using some of my language the other day? <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President. I, I'm afraid you did. And he said, Pete, he called me Pete. Pete, that won't happen again, will it? No, sir, that will not. And I said goodbye to George H.W. Bush. Why is that a favorite? It's not a favorite anecdote. It's humiliating and embarrassing, but it's true. And it showed the graciousness of the man. Almost anybody else in politics, politicians are tough figures. Almost anybody else in politics would have scuppered my appointment to the president's staff. But he just said, okay, just not again. Peter Robinson, thanks for your time here at the Hoover Institution on the campus of Stanford University. We enjoyed the conversation. Steve, my pleasure. Our listeners can't see this, but you're wearing a tie. Steve, it's California. (laughs) Take that tie off. We thank you for your time. A reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. If you're looking for a daily wrap-up of the stories making news here in Washington, we hope you check out our podcast, Washington Today. It is posted weekdays after 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to policymakers, members of Congress, as well as journalists who cover the stories. We'll also share some of the most important moments from those congressional hearings, the president at the White House or on the road, or other events happening here in Washington. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter for any update. You can do so at C-SPAN Radio.